Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and we are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are five of my Black classmates, Fred Easter from Minneapolis, John Woodford from Ann Arbor, George Jones from Atlanta, Jerry Secundi from Pasadena, and Connie McDougall from New York City. I'm also joined by classmates George Allen from Los Angeles, Mason Morfitt from Freeport, Maine, David Othmer from Philadelphia, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Alden Biscow from San Mateo, and Hampton Howell from Tennessee. We all have a lot to say and a lot of people we want to talk to before we leave the planet. In this episode, we talk with Seton Hall law professor Thomas Healy about his new book, Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia. His book is about the 1970 visions and dreams of civil rights leader Floyd McKissick, who would attempt to build a new, predominantly black city in North Carolina. Listen to Walter Cronkite and Floyd McKissick from back in the day. Negro leader today announced plans for creation of a black-built, black-owned town to be called Soul City in North Carolina. In this new town, persons will be able to control their own destinies. Here is author Thomas Healy. Um, so, you know, I hoped that in, in telling the story about Soul City and about what he was trying to accomplish, and in particular, why Soul City never succeeded uh, the way that McKissick hoped, I, 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 my goal was to, to try to help us learn something about not only the, the aspirations and the motivations behind Soul City, um, but, the, but the forces that, that stood in the way and, and the reasons that Soul City never really um, uh, became what, what McKissick hoped, which was, you know, he thought he was going to build a city of 50,000 people from scratch <clears throat> um, out of the red clay of the North Carolina Piedmont. I have a question. Technically, how did he do it? The land is uninhabited. How was he going to go about ejecting all the white people who were already there? Or did he incorporate a town? Or so it's a little bit like Israel. It wasn't empty. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, it, it wasn't empty, but it was rural, right? And there was tons of, of um, farmland, <clears throat> much of it not really being put to much use. Um, and, uh, and he was looking for a big chunk of land and he found it in Warren County, which is, um, for those of you who know North, North Carolina geography or Virginia geography, <clears throat> if you're driving between say Raleigh, Durham and Richmond, um, it's about halfway in between. It's just south of the Virginia border in kind of, the, I guess, the north central part of, of North Carolina. Um, and it was really, you know, really rural at the time. There were about in the entire county, I think there were 16,000 people. Uh, the population had been had been dropping each decade. Uh, I think they had lost about 7,000 people um, from 1960 uh, um, to 1970 because as in lots of parts of the South, you know, people were leaving these rural areas. There was no economic opportunity. And, and you know, particularly black people were leaving and, and moving to the cities of the North, but lots of white people were leaving that area as well. 
so there was a lot of land and, and he identified a tract of about 5,000 acres, um, which is about a third of the size of Manhattan, plenty of space to build um, a city of uh, what was initially planned to be about 18,000. But, but as the planning progressed, they ultimately projected uh, a city of 50,000. And so, you know, the, the, he couldn't kick out the people who lived in the rest of the county, of course, uh, but he was going to build a city within the parameters of this land that he, that he purchased. Um, and yes, then the idea was to, you know, either incorporate or to create some sort of governmental structure. They ultimately decided against incorporation for a variety of kind of bureaucratic reasons. Um, but they did create, uh, you know, um, sort of, uh, agencies uh, that would uh, that would raise revenue, collect taxes, and then provide public services. But I mean, you wrote that he wanted to he wanted it to be eighty percent black and and twenty percent white. Or he I, he never really said he wanted eighty percent black, twenty percent white. I think what he what he acknowledged was that it would likely be overwhelmingly black or, you know, uh, that, that it would likely be some, something along those percentages. Um, but he did want it to be predominantly black. I mean, he did have the idea of building a city um, where, you know, the, the developer, where the people building it, where the people planning it, and where the people, you know, um, uh, who sort of controlled the, the majority of, of capital would be, would be black. Um, you know, he was... He, it, was, it was intended to be a multiracial community. Um, but by this point in, uh, you know, in, in our history and in Floyd McKissick's personal history, which we can talk about in, in a little bit, he cared less about whether white people wanted to come there. That was a sort of secondary concern. He, his view was sure, if white people want to come and live here, that's fine. But his primary concern was how do you improve the lives of of black people and, and how do you give them the kind of economic opportunity and, you know, um, upward mobility uh, and, you know, the ability to, to have a, a good job and to have a, a good home and to control some capital because he, he came to believe that, you know, that's the way you have power in, in our society is by controlling capital. Um, so a lot of people uh, misinterpreted what he had in mind and, and assumed that it would be all black. And his response was, no, you know, it, it, there will be white people. And there were, you know, 25% of the staff was white. His closest friend at the time was white. Um, but a lot of people thought that it was going to be all black. And they thought that in part, because as you, as you mentioned, Kent, uh, the name, um, Soul City, uh, you know, at this time in our history, Soul was, you know, um, a, a pretty clear reference to black culture. Um, and, uh, and a lot of um, people took that name and they thought, well, if it's called Soul City, that must mean it's going to be exclusively black. And, and that was not Floyd McKissick's uh, goal, but he did want the, the, he did want the city to have a black association to sort of be thought of as a, of a city that was black oriented. And so it was important to him that the name reflect that. And, and the name ended up being a huge obstacle to lots of what he was trying to achieve, including bringing in industry, uh, because, you know, this was a, a, a very kind of 
economically depressed area. If you're going to build a city, you have to bring in industry to create jobs. And there were lots of serious corporations that looked at Soul City as a place uh, where they could build uh, factories, corporations like General Motors, um, but the name proved to be a big stumbling block. Um, a lot of these corporations worried that uh, that the name, um, you know, suggested that this would be all black, um, and uh, and and wanted him to change the name, and he refused because, you know, in his view, it ought to be possible to have a place um, that is thought of as having sort of black associations. And that ought to be the kind of place that everybody's willing to live in, just like everybody's willing to live in, or, you know, we expect everybody to be willing to live in places that have um, associations with, with white culture. Um, Was he familiar with the story of Greenwood, Oklahoma? You know, he was familiar generally with the history of black towns in the United States. I mean, that's something that I get into in the, in the book because um, there is a long tradition of, uh, of, of black communities in the United States, both you know, before the Civil War and, and especially after the Civil War um, in, in, you know, in Oklahoma and in Kansas and, and in other parts of the country. Um, and he was familiar with the, generally with the, the history of black towns. And of course, he was familiar uh, with Black Wall Street in, in Tulsa, which is in, in lots of ways, a kind of precursor to what he was trying to accomplish in Soul City, kind of black economic self-sufficiency. Um, and, you know, and, and I think Soul City really grew out of those, um, those earlier ideas and those earlier experiments in creating uh, communities that could be a kind of haven um, for, uh, for African-Americans, but, but he wanted it to be more than a haven. Uh, he wanted it to be fully integrated with the economic mainstream. You know, he didn't want to go off and create some, some world where, you know, black people would just sort of do their own thing and, and not be connected. Um, he, he knew from an economic standpoint, uh, that Soul City would have to be co connected to the economic mainstream. Um, and so, you know, I, I think he he envisioned Soul City being, you know, uh, just as connected to the rest of the economy and to the rest of the culture as, say, Charlotte or Raleigh. Um, the difference is that, you know, rather than being 80% white and 20% black, it would be probably the opposite. Um, one of the one of the, someone who wrote to him about this concept, uh, um, someone who was sympathetic to the idea, described it as integration blackwards, um, kind of a play on integration backwards. <laughs> um, and you know, and and this 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 person who wrote to him, he said, you know, it's it's where you know we call the shots. And McKissick said, absolutely, that's exactly what I have in mind. You know, he said, everybody thinks about integration, you know, where it's 80% white and 20% black, but why can't integration uh, be 80% black and 20% and white? I mean, that's integrated, that's, that's multicultural, that's <laughs> multiracial. Uh, and it really frustrated him to no end that, that a lot of his critics could not accept that and, and, and thought that, well, if it's 80% mm -hmm. black, it's segregated. Well, how did he, how was he able to get the money? I mean, and given that Nixon was president and, uh, you know, you had Helms and people in Congress like that. Uh, 
1968, Congress passed uh, a, a law called the New Communities Act. It was actually part of the um, Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968. Um, and it allocated initially $250 million, but ultimately up to $500 million to support the building of new towns around the country. Not specifically new, uh, uh, predominantly black towns, but just new towns across the country. And this was a response to uh, really two different uh, factors. One, um, the, the, what was viewed as a kind of urban crisis of the 1960s, uh, the um, uh, lack of affordable housing, um, the um, uh, unemployment rates, the, the poverty, the inability to sort of pay for social services because you had a lot of middle-class whites um, who were moving out of um, cities in the North. Um, and, and there was a lot of obviously uh, social unrest, um, uh, the, you know, we protests and, uh, and demonstrations, you know, uh, at different uh, times in, in these cities in the, in the late 1960s. Um, and so there was a sense that we need to do something about this. There was also this, uh, this concern about the population growth in the country that would take place over the next 40 or 50 years. Um, there was, I think, a projection that there were going to be a, 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 we were going to add 100 million new residents over the next half century. And so a lot of people who were, um, who were interested in planning and urban development, they thought that the solution to this um, was to try to build new cities around the country, to create new growth centers, um, to kind of alleviate the congestion um, in you know, some of the big metropolises um, and, and to also kind of uh, provide economic opportunity in places where there wasn't as much. Um, and this was perfect for what McKissick had in mind. This is exactly what he wanted to do. He wanted to help uh, reverse the migration of, uh, of largely poor African-Americans from the South to the North um, and, uh, and, and help to ease the, the problems that Northern cities were facing. Um, and so he applied for funding under this program. Uh, cities were allowed um, up to $50 million. That was sort of the cap for any individual project. Um, and so he filed an application with uh, HUD, which was overseeing the project. Um, and he, he took him a while. Uh, he had to fight tooth and nail to get HUD to ultimately approve Soul City. But after about three years of back and forth, um, HUD did uh, agree to provide up to $14 million um, in the form of um, uh, uh, guaranteed loans, uh, basically sort of bonds that the government would back. Uh, and um, and so that's, that's the sort of bulk of the money that he got from the federal government, although he never really got the whole 14 million. Um, he also was able to uh, tap into lots of grant programs to help provide public services like uh, a healthcare clinic. He got an um, OEO grant to build a healthcare clinic. Um, he got a grant to build a, uh, an industrial facility. He got a grant, he, he joined forces with, um, with his neighboring counties uh, to apply for grant money to build a regional water system uh, and a regional sewerage system. Uh, he got you know, money from the Department of Highway and Transport, Highways and Transportation uh, for roads. He got, he got money from the state of North Carolina. Um, he, was, he was pretty successful at 
um, at tapping into grants that were being made available specifically for this purpose of helping to support these kinds of these kinds of new developments. Um, and, uh, you know, so that was huge because he, he, he could not have funded this on his own. Um, McKissick was a, uh, you know, a civil rights lawyer uh, and, you know, he he had done OK, uh, but, you know, he had he didn't have this kind of money and he didn't there was no corporate backing that was going to give him this kind of money. Um, there were other new privately funded new towns that were being developed around the same time, like uh, Columbia, Maryland or Reston, Virginia. And those were largely funded by private money, um, you know, Connecticut General Life or TIAA CREF, uh, you know, those kinds of big uh, companies provided the funding for some of these uh, other cities. Uh, but McKissick had no choice, really. He had to rely on government funding, which created this, this dilemma for him because the whole purpose of Soul City was to create economic opportunity and wealth for black people so that they wouldn't have to depend upon the beneficence of the federal government or the beneficence of white corporations. But in order to do that, he first had to depend on those very institutions. Um, and that really ended up being this kind of catch 22 uh, because he, he basically had to surrender a lot of control to the federal government in building Soul City, um, and and the federal government really never um, supported uh, the project the way that it, it needed to in order for it to succeed. It, it erected all sorts of barriers and and imposed all sorts of conditions that made it really difficult for him to to ultimately pull off this uh, this dream. As I re read it, and I'm only I think I'm about. 90 pages from the end or 100, but he really, uh, you know, he stepped into waters that he didn't know how to swim in, really. As far as being a developer, he wasn't a housing developer, real estate. So he, he had to learn an awful lot, seat of the pants. And he was really going uphill because you mentioned the water problems. And of course, they had no job nearby. They had none of the none of the more nat things we would think of as natural that you would need to have a natural formation of a city, you know, out in the boondocks. So it's quite an experiment, but that coupled with downturns in the economy and crises of that sort, political, and in our country, of course, one administration comes in or group comes in and they undo what the other one may have supported because there's patronage because he switched from being a Democrat to be a Nixonite because that was the way for him to get the money as he saw it. But that's a impermanent, you know, structure there too. So, you know, my hat's off the way he struggled, but I, I kind of felt that he was, it was like a Don Quixote really. There's certainly an aspect of that, you know, and, and he was aware of that, that this seemed like an impossible dream that he was trying to achieve. Um, and, you know, it is true that he he was not a real estate developer. Um, and, and that was something that concerned HUD quite a bit um, when he was applying for this money. And uh, one of the conditions of giving him the, the loan guarantee was that he bring in partners um, who did have uh, experience in real estate development. So he did bring in um, uh, uh, those kinds of partners. He brought in this 
corporate, uh, I think it's called the Corporation for Housing Partnership. Uh, I could be getting that wrong. It's in the book, but um, he brought in this uh, uh, black architectural firm, uh, Madison and Madison, and, you know, and he hired uh, people who had experience in city planning. Um, he hired uh, the individual who had been the city planner in Gary, Indiana. Um, and, you know, so he, he tried to put together a staff to help provide that kind of expertise. Um, you know, and I, I have to say, um, I was pretty impressed in researching the book uh, with, with um, how competent the, the, the staff was and sort of how, um, you know, how, how, what a serious undertaking it was. I think it was often portrayed in the media as this kind of, you know, as a group of kind of flaky, you know, maybe hippies or black power advocates or something, uh, you know, trying to build a city, but it was, it was not that at all. I mean, these, you know, the people he hired, you know, um, they were, they were serious uh, individuals who had experience um, uh, and, uh, you know, you, if you go back and you look through the archives, which are just voluminous, I mean, you know, they were doing their homework and he had the support of James Rouse who built Columbia, Maryland. Uh, and the Rouse company was, was, um, it was really behind soul city and, and really made available lots of resources. Uh, McKissick and, a, a several of his staff members went and spent several weeks, uh, in Columbia, um, in the summer of 1969, uh, talking to, you know, all of the, the heads of all of the different departments about how to make a project like this succeed. Um, so, uh, you know, I think you're, you're right, John, that, um, you know, he was um, swimming in waters that, he, that were unfamiliar. Um, and I think that certainly didn't help. Uh, but, you know, I think he could have overcome that, especially, you know, with the support of HUD. Um, had had other things fallen in place. You mentioned the economy. What about his population? Did he do any work? To, to have, what kind of people did he want to attract? Did he want black middle class, black farmers, black what? And how is in the world is he going to get them? Because anybody who is sort of well off would have to be a, a true believer to move from their comfortable home in uh, Michigan yeah, no, no, that's a great question. And that created, uh, you know, a further kind of dilemma, which is that he, he needed to um, attract companies to create jobs. Uh, but those companies would only come if they thought there would be workers, right, and a place for the workers to live. But the workers would only come if they knew that there were going to be jobs and a place for them to live. And so, you know, it was this real chicken and egg yeah. problem, like, which, which do you do first? Um, do you do you bring in the, the the people and then try to get the jobs, or do you bring in the jobs and then try to get the people? And McKissick's um, response was, "Well, we got to do both at the same time." You know, well, was he building though a movement of grassroots people who wanted a community, or was it kind of like a real estate project? I think it was more like a real estate project. Um, I mean, I think I think that. Uh, you know, just, just as Columbia, Maryland was a real estate project or rest in Virginia or, you know, uh, Irv, Irv, Irvine, California, you know, there were a lot of new communities and cities being built uh, during this time in our history. And now some of them had advantages that he didn't. Some of them were closer to major metropolitan areas. I mean, Columbia is halfway between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And so it could serve as a kind of bedroom community. It didn't have to create the entire 
economic base. Um, McKissick really was going to have to create the entire economic base because he wasn't close enough to say Raleigh Durham uh, to so that people could commute there. Um, now he wasn't that far away. He was about an hour away, uh, which, you know, today we would think, well, you just put a light rail line in and, and there you go. But, you know, an hour seemed, I think a little further back then. Um, and Raleigh Durham, of course, was, you know, was nowhere near Washington DC or Baltimore. I mean, Raleigh Durham was maybe 180,000 combined at the time. Um, so that was, that was definitely a, an obstacle that, that he faced. Um, but there was, I think, a big uh, uh, appetite among a lot of African-Americans who had moved to the North um, looking for opportunity and had not found what they were looking for. I think there, was a, there were a lot of people who wanted to come back. And, you know, I was pretty amazed in going through the archives, all of the letters that McKissick received when he announced plans from Soul, for Soul City, letters from people living all uh, you know, around the country, but in particular in Northern cities, African-Americans who had moved away from places like Warren County and said, yes, I wanna come back. I wanna come back to a city um, where I can have a good job. You know, the, the, this is not what I expected uh, living in Newark or Detroit or New York City or Philadelphia or Baltimore. Um, and so I think, you know, I think had he been able to bring in the, the industry and the jobs, I don't think he would have had a lack of people willing to live uh, and work in Soul City. Um, and there were, you know, there were people in the, uh, in the county itself. There were a lot of, uh, say, underemployed uh, black uh, farmers um, who I think, you know, you could have easily um, trained to work in, in these factories. So I think the, the, the biggest problem was not how do you get people to move here? I think had he been able to build the city that he had in mind and to bring the corporations in uh, to, to provide the jobs, I think he could have, he could have, the, the people would have, would have, uh, would have come, you know, field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. I think that was, that was his, his vision. And I think that, I think, uh, you know, I, I think he was right about that. Um, but the industries uh, were hesitant to come, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. They weren't, they weren't convinced that the federal government was fully behind the project. Um, the federal government sort of released the money in, in <clears throat> drips and drabs uh, and, and, and led a lot of um, uh, corporations to believe that, that the federal government at any moment could pull the plug on Soul City. Um, and you just, you know, if you're trying to undertake an ambitious venture like this, you know, it's going to take 30 years and you got to be all in, right? Because you're going to lose a lot of money in the first 10, 15 years. You're not going to start making money or even breaking even for a while. Um, and so you've got to have real commitment. And that was one of the things that, that McKissick never really had. And, and of course, when Nixon left office um, in disgrace uh, in 1974, um, you know, that was a big blow to McKissick because he had basically thrown in his lot with, with Nixon. Um, the economy, uh, we had two recessions in the 1970s that made huge real estate developments like this really difficult. Um, and then there was a lot of political opposition uh, within, uh, within the state um, uh, from Jesse Helms, who had just been elected to the Senate uh, on the right, and then uh, the Raleigh News and Observer um, on the left, 
uh, which uh, viewed SoulCity as a kind of step back from integration um, and, and ran a series of uh, really misleading and inaccurate articles about SoulCity suggesting you know, fraud and incompetence and mismanagement of money and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I make clear in the book that there, this was, I think, as I put it, uh, this was improbable, but not impossible. Um, had everything gone right, um, I think he could have pulled it off. And he actually got a lot closer than anyone ever thought he would get. Um, but definitely he faced a lot of headwinds. Well, you write in the book about uh, you're visiting the site or going out there. How much did he actually physically get built? Yeah, a, a lot of infrastructure was put in place. So, you know, he ended up acquiring about 3,500 acres, uh, cleared the land, um, installed underground electrical wires, uh, built roads, um, installed this regional water system, which, is, which was a huge undertaking in the regional sewerage system. Uh, he built... Um, a neighborhood, the first neighborhood of about 70 homes with a pool and rec center. Uh, he built a, uh, a 75,000 square foot industrial facility, a healthcare center, a volunteer fire department, a lake, uh, a church, little strip mall, things like that. Um, you know, when you drive down there now, it doesn't look like much, but this was all accomplished in the time span of about five years because he didn't get money from the government until the bulk of the money until 1974, the federal government stopped supporting it in 1979. So, you know, if you think about five years is not a long time to do all of that work and all of the planning uh, that you need to do before that work. So, you know, I think he actually, um, I think planners who were honest about it, you know, acknowledged that he had accomplished as much in five years as anyone could really expect that he would. And I understand he, uh, his, he was buried at Seoul City. I'm not sure whether he died there or not. He did. He, he lived there um, after the federal government stopped supporting Seoul City. He continued to live there. He had built a home for he and his wife. Uh, his children by that point were, were grown or in college, um, but he, uh, he continued to live in Seoul City. Um, uh, and he died in 1991 and uh, is buried in the front yard of, well, not really the front yard, but he's buried near, uh, near his home in Seoul City and his wife is as well. Is it a town now? It is not. It is, um, it doesn't appear, you know, in any kind of census designation. Uh, if, you, if you drive there, um, you know, it's it sort of, I describe it in the book as, as looking like a movie set that's been left behind because, you know, you're driving, you know, down a rural road with, you know, soybean farms on one side and occasionally maybe a, uh, a mobile home. Um, and then you come to the entrance to this neighborhood, this first neighborhood subdivision that they built. Um, and there's this huge monolith uh, about 20 feet high um, concrete monolith with the word Soul City engraved in red iron um, that had initially been at the entrance to the city, but now is at the entrance to this subdivision. Um, and, you know, it looks, as I say in the book, it looks like the entrance to any subdivision in America. 
Um, you know, there's like a kind of wide grassy median. Um, the, the, there's a sign with the name of the village, the, the little neighborhood, um, you know, and then you drive around this, uh, this neighborhood and, you know, but for the fact that it's in the middle of a very sparsely populated rural area, you, know, you could imagine that you're in any kind of middle or maybe middle, a lower middle income uh, neighborhood in, in, in America. Um, and Connie, you asked earlier, you know, who did, did he want to attract, you know, middle-class individuals or, or uh, uh, you know, professionals or what? Um, I mean, I think his primary goal was to provide opportunity for people who are poor or unemployed, um, but he didn't want it to be, um, you know, a uh, uh, a place that was viewed as just, as just, you know, a poverty stricken area. So I think, you know, he, he wanted to attract people different income levels, but his, his primary concern was not to create a place for the black elite. Uh, his primary concern was how do you create, you know, real economic opportunity for, um, you know, for uh, individuals who are disadvantaged economically. You know, what can we learn from this? What, 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 what a, a value can we take from this that we can use now? Um, this is always the hardest part when you tell a story from history, I think. Um, and you, and you want to be careful not to be, you know, simplistic in, in thinking about this, but I've been asked this question a lot and, and have thought about it a lot. And my view is that, um, the, the big lesson is about how, uh, how people who are sympathetic to the, uh, to the cause of racial justice and, uh, and economic equality, how they should respond to, um, to, to what people in the, you know, in, in this case, in the black community, but, you know, but to, uh, in other cases, to people in other communities, how they should respond to what those people say about what, what they need, what people are saying about what they need. Let me try to be a little more clear here. Uh, McKissick, in terms of opposition, he came up against two forces. On the one hand was Jesse Helms. And, and I assume that all of you know yeah. Jesse Helms, right? Yeah. So I don't need to say anything more about Jesse Helms. And Jesse Helms was never going to change his mind about Soul City or his views about, uh, about race uh, or his views about the role of government in, in our society. Um, on the other side, you had uh, a guy by the name of Claude Sitton, who a lot of you may also know, um, who was the New York Times civil rights reporter uh, during the kind of central years of the civil rights movement, uh, is a kind of legendary figure uh, within the world of journalism and was really viewed as a kind of hero um, by a lot of civil rights activists um, because of his unflinching portrayal of what was happening in the South at the time. Claude Sitton uh, ended up back in uh, North Carolina. He left the New York Times and he became the editor of the Raleigh News and Observer. Um, and he was deeply opposed to Soul City from the very beginning. He called it, uh, you know, defeatism and withdrawal. And he said it was like a sociological sport um, because in his view, this was a move away from integration. Um, and in spite of the fact that McKissick said over and over that Soul City would not be segregated, would not be a separatist community. 
Sidden just just couldn't see that. He just couldn't. He had a blind spot. He just couldn't get his head around the idea that 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 it might make sense to have a space, a physical space, a community, a whole city uh, that was built and largely controlled by African Americans. Um, and you know, his he had one model of what integration looked like, and it was a model of of black people and other people of color integrating into white society. Um, Sitton was also opposed to uh, preserving historically black colleges. Um, and, you know, and what's so frustrating about this, I think, is that Sitton should have been a natural ally for McKissick, you know, to the extent that the newspaper cared about the state um, and cared about poverty. Uh, I mean, McKissick was trying to uh, Warren County, where Soul City was being built, was, I think, the second poorest county in the state. Um, and McKissick was bringing all sorts of federal money into this area. He was, he was attempting to attract, attract corporate money into this area. Claude Sitton should have been fully behind this. Uh, but, you know, but he, he wasn't listening. He wasn't listening to what Floyd McKissick uh, and other people were saying. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, it's kind of, you know, a, an obvious thing to say, but I think it, it needs to keep being said, uh, you know, that, that uh, when, you know, there's, there's a kind of meme that I see sometimes on Twitter, you know, where it says uh, black parents know what's best for their kids, you know, and I think it, it's, it's a truism. And I think that the, we could say somewhat the same thing about, you know, the larger community. I think, I think Floyd McKissick knew better than Claude Sitton what it was that black people needed at that moment in history. Um, and, you know, Sitton should have been open uh, to hearing him. And I think, you know, that's the lesson basically is that people like Claude Sitton, you know, white people in positions of power and responsibility um, need to hear what, uh, what in, in for talking about racial justice in particular, and to hear what people of color are saying, and to take seriously um, the the proposals that they that they that they make, and have some humility about their own wisdom. But I would draw a different conclusion though, because I don't think that a viable. Well, for one thing, in our capitalist system that we have here, I think that these aims to be achieved in a in an outpost like that. Uh, it's not going to happen, uh, that you're going to have a city that somehow overturns the laws of, uh, let's say, cheap labor, because that's what they were looking at. The companies were looking for cheap labor, as they do everywhere in this country or the world, when they talk about setting up these businesses in a sole city. And so, to me, it if it was a viable project, the likes of Sitton or Helms wouldn't be able to um, obstruct it so easily. I mean, I think it was, <laughs> I think it was, I think it was a fig leaf kind of a thing for a lot of the politicians and agencies, because in our country we don't really form, we don't have much economic planning that turns out to be very wise and it can go for thirty years uh, in advance. We have uh, some businesses that do it, but really we don't plan cities. We don't build them like the Chinese and others. We don't use our, our, uh, you know, our, our national wealth that way very uh, wisely or competently. So I think that's, oh. uh, he was up against, I think he was up against 
a lot of the flaws in our system. And to be one little, you know, enterprise trying to trying to make it, I don't think he could do it. Besides him, and you was so inspired. I think of the shakers, <laughs> and I also think of communism. And shakers succeeded for a while because they had a culture and a philosophy of wanting to live the way they did. And that's why I asked, just, was there a gra grassroots movement, any kind of a philosophy driving this? And apparently not. And then I think about um, communist Russia and how they were really not able to, or to control and organize effectively a planned economy. And so I think it, you know, it's like he, he really just waded into an incredible situation. And I, I guess I would not agree that he knew what blacks needed more than other people did. I don't think that really shows that he knew. Um, and it's so super complicated. And, and I don't feel he had a clear philosophy of what he was doing. Why did it have to be in the country if he wanted... Um, uh, businesses to be there. Why did it have to be built from the ground when there? The land was cheapest. Yeah. To buy the, the land. land was cheap, but it didn't have any houses. Well, <laughs> or so made it cheap. <laughs> yeah, that's what made it cheap. It wasn't cheap in the long run. I, I should um, point out, you know, this was Congress's vision too. Congress, the 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 intent behind the New Communities Act was to build new cities in. Uh, you know, in rural areas, not as bedroom communities. So some of the, the towns that were getting funding, they were designed to be bedroom communities, but really Seoul City was the, was the one of, uh, of town of the ones that were funded that was really true to the, uh, to the purpose behind the act. And I mean, you know, I think that um, it, was, it was definitely, you know, an ambitious idea, this, this sense that you could build new cities around the country. Um, and it does have this kind of unorganic planned sense to it. Um, that was sort of the, the vogue in planning at the time in, in planning circles. Um, it's probably not the vogue now. I mean, I think to us, you know, at this point in our history, the idea of building a new city seems incredibly foreign, but it was, it was not viewed as that strange then. Um, but I do think that there was a lack of political will. Congress passed this law, but I don't think Congress was ever fully behind it. I think it was, you know, well, we'll throw some money over here at this idea and then we'll see what happens. But you can't just sort of do something like this half-hearted. You, you know, it's too, it's too complicated. It's too ambitious. You have to be fully invested in it. And I think Congress really wasn't fully invested in it. Um, and you're right uh, that, that, you know, most of these communities failed. The one that succeeded, um, the, the government funded uh, communities, the one that succeeded um, is the Woodlands, Woodlands uh, which yeah. is an exurb of Houston. Now, what's interesting about the Woodlands is that it got 50, <laughs> it got $50 million from the federal government. Uh, mm. Soul City ended up getting $10 million from the federal government. Um, you know, and, and I think that level of support makes a difference. The developer was also an oil magnet, uh, which, you know, helped. Um, and it was a community that now is 88% white. And, and that helped because they didn't face any political <laughs> opposition. No one came in and said, uh, oh, this is going to be a white separatist community. Uh, and yet, you know, Soul City would have probably been more integrated than the Woodlands, Texas. What's your sense of, uh, when you, if you think about uh, 
Floyd McKissick having been successful with Soul City, how would that uh, have changed history in your view or what's your sense of that? So just let's think about it for a second. Let's just do a little, a little mental experiment. Let's imagine that there's a city in North Carolina called Soul City. And by now it's probably got maybe what, 75,000 people because it was supposed to have 50,000 by the turn of the century. And if it was a, you know, if it was a, a successful place, it would probably have 75,000 people now, which is not huge. Uh, but in North Carolina, that would probably make it the, I'm going to say maybe the seventh or eighth largest city after, you know, Charlotte, Raleigh, Durham, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, Asheville, you know, so it would be a pretty, you know, a pretty significant uh, place and, and probably some of the areas near it, some of the towns near it, like Henderson, would, would now kind of be a part of it. It might, you know, might have even annexed some of those and it might be a larger metropolitan area. Um, and, you know, let's imagine that this community was 80%, 75% African-American. And let's imagine that, you know, it was a place where the police force was predominantly African-American and the school system uh, was run, uh, you know, predominantly by African-Americans and the social services uh, you know, the, uh, the way that they were structured took into account the needs of the people who were living there um, and uh, the health care. Uh, and let's imagine that, you know, most of the businesses or a lot of the businesses, a lot of the wealth was in the hands of African-Americans. You know, I think that would be a pretty remarkable model for other places in the country. I think, you know, McKissick hoped that if Soul City was successful, that there would be other communities like that that would be built. And I think that, you know, it would also just demonstrate that, that um, you know, that, that white doesn't always have to be the default, uh, you know, that, that you can have a multicultural place uh, where the default is something other than white. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to speak for, for anyone else, but when I, you know, in the reading I've done and, you know, it strikes me that that is something that is, uh, is, is appealing to people of color. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I even, I mean, I even see that a little bit in, in your discussion, Kent, in your book, you know, where you talked about the attempt to basically create like a, a um, you know, a black student organization, uh, you know, and, and this concern that it would be, you know, reverse discrimination. And, you know, your response is that's ludicrous. That's not the same thing, you know, and, and that sometimes, you know, I think you, you said that, you know, sometimes you and your fellow students uh, wanted, wanted to be alone, right? Wanted wanted to be in your own space and, and also to feel like you were in a place where you belonged. I mean, you know, just thinking about McKissick psychologically, you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is, is talk about his experiences as a young, as a young person growing up in Asheville um, and the kind of discrimination he faced and, and the kind of, um, you know, harassment that he faced from the police. And all of this led him to believe, as he put it, that he was a black boy in a white world. Um, or a black boy in a white land. Um, and, you know, I think that he, that he was, you know, he, he was trying to, to create a space where he felt, you know, as I put it in the book at home in his own country. Um, I think he was, he was sick of feeling like he, he didn't belong and he wanted a space where he, where he would know that he belonged. Uh, yeah, I, I see. In America. And um, the, I said it would still be in America. And the history of very successful, very wealthy black 
communities is, is not a happy one. They, they have been stamped out by, by almost like pogroms um, over and over again. So I asked myself, number why wouldn't that have happened again? Um, and, and I also have another idea, which is, isn't Atlanta a little bit like what he had in mind? with a lot of returning blacks. Now, I don't know what the, the, the population is percentage wise, but I feel that Atlanta is a lot of black people moving back south um, and, and, and being successful. And the town is being more and more run by, by blacks. So in a funny way, isn't that a more organic way of achieving what McKissick had in mind? Well, I think you're right that, you know, in some respects, Atlanta is is becoming at least a, a part of what McKissick had in mind. But that, I think that also demonstrates that there was a desire that there were that there were African-Americans who had moved to the north who wanted to come back to the south. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. I think I think that shows that you know this was not some artificial thing that he was trying to impose on people, uh, but that he was actually responding to a real need and a real desire. Now, I don't know enough about the politics of Atlanta or the economics of Atlanta to know whether black people have real power in Atlanta. Um, if they do, then that's great. And, you know, and, and I think McKissick would be, uh, would be pleased with that. Um, but, you know, it's taken a long time to get there. And, um, you know, whether that's a more organic and effective way to achieve what he was trying to, to do, I'm, I'm not sure. And I think he, his view would have been, why did we have to choose? You know, in response to people who said, you know, why don't we rebuild Harlem? He said, fine, let's do both. You know, let's do both. Let's rebuild Harlem. Let's rebuild, you know, uh, parts of Los Angeles. Um, but why, why can't we also invest in a new community where we can try to avoid the mistakes that have been made in the past? Uh, I see Alden, you've had your hand up very patiently uh, for a while. So I'm going to make some space for you to ask your question. I don't want to throw uh, cold water on that vision, which I think is a very interesting vision, but I'm going to speculate that much as when integration came along in the 60s and 70s, that if some of those banks and the insurance companies were making money, white folks from outside would have come in and bought them and, and, and run, run them, not live there, but from New York, Milwaukee, Atlanta, somewhere else, that's my speculation. I, I, and, and I think, you know, I think that it, um, I, I don't think you're wrong about that, uh, about that speculation. And I think, you know, this was something that I don't think McKissick fully had figured out. And the reason he hadn't fully figured it out is because it's very hard to solve. Um, you know, he wanted to attract these, these major corporations to come into Soul City and provide jobs. But then he also wanted the people who were working there to have a share of ownership and, you know, he hadn't figured out how you're going to yeah. persuade General Motors to give up control of, of the factory. He had this economist he worked with named Louis Kelso, who introduced this idea called radical capitalism, where, you know, the corporations would get sort of tax-free dollars to build the factories, and then they would basically turn the factories over to the employees and the kind of trust. And, you know, and it was all rather, um, you know, um, I don't, pie in the sky might not be fair, but it was, it was certainly 
you know, it would have been a, a pretty radical departure. That's why I called it radical capitalism. Would have been a pretty radical departure from the system as as we knew it. Um, and gradually, you know, McKissick found himself forced to compromise on um, on on a lot of these ideals that he had. You know, in the sort of desperate you know, attempt to keep Soul City going. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, it would have been a struggle had Soul City been successful, had these businesses been profitable and had they been in the hands of black people, you know, what would have stopped uh, companies from outside of Soul City coming in and buying those up, uh, you know, um, and, and then basically having control. Um, and, you know, that Floyd McKissick definitely had not figured out that, but no one has, to be honest. Um, and so I, I don't think it's fair to fault him. And I know you're not faulting him, but you're just sort of speculating about what might have happened. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he, he, I think this is why some, some of his critics thought that, that he was wrong to even try to work within the capitalist system. You know, that the capitalist system was, was simply rigged uh, and that uh, better to topple the whole system. McKissick viewed himself as a pragmatist. Um, and uh, I think he thought, well, look, we don't have much chance of overthrowing the capitalist system. Uh, we might as well at least try to work within that system and get a, get a piece of what gives you power within the capitalist system, which is capital. Um, you cooperative, um, cooperative movements and cooperative systems of ownership and enterprise? I missed the first part of your question. Did you look at cooperative? Yeah. Yeah. So did McKissick? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Soul City, the uh, kind of grew out of um, an idea for creating a system of uh, uh, co-ops across the rural South. You know, McKissick wanted to, um, one of the big problems that people in the civil rights struggle faced was, you know, if they were, if they were active, then they would be, um, blacklisted by, you know, local white owned banks or the stores they needed to buy their, their, uh, the seed for their farms or the equipment they needed. Um, and so McKissick did have an, uh, an idea of building a system of black cooperatives across the rural South, um, to insulate, um, black people from that kind of backlash. And, and it was actually, that was sort of the genesis of, of this idea of building a city, he just the idea kept growing. And he said, why, why cooperatives? Let's build a whole, let's build a whole city. Um, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, part of the people, a number of people have asked me like, why a city? Why, you know, why, why didn't he just try to build, you know, a big corporation or something? I think, I think there was something, I think he was on to something, which is, you know, obviously he wasn't going to create an entire state, Right. I mean, that, that wasn't going to be possible, but I think he wanted to aim as big as you could within the kind of, you know, political system we have, because I think he realized that you have to have power at that scale and control at that scale in order to fend off the kind of, you know, discrimination or takeovers that, that, uh, variety, that many of you are suggesting, you know, he might have, he might have uh, had to deal with. Um, and, and I think there was some wisdom to that, you know, I think, you know, when you, when you, if you just build a neighborhood or a community within an existing place that's that's in the control of other people, then you're now sub, you're subject to to the constraints that they impose. Yeah. Um, and so I think he thought, you know, you build a whole city, and yet you're still subject to the larger 
culture into the larger political community and the state and the federal government. But if you own a city, if you control a city, not own a city, if you control a city, you control a lot of what happens. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that was a lot to pull off that, you know, there yeah. was, there was a big, big, ambitious, audacious, uh, idea. Um, but I find it frankly, you know, at least it, from in retrospect, I find it really inspiring that he was thinking that big. That's it for this episode of the last Negroes at Harvard. The book is soul city, race equality, and the lost dream of an American utopia. The author is Thomas Healy. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.